Jeremiah chapter 18, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Some of you still still turning. It's, it's page 544 in my Bible. It's like Matthew, Mark, Luke, Jeremiah. Okay, if you haven't found it yet, just open your Bible any place and put an intelligent look on your face, okay? <laughs> I will cause thee to hear my words. And I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. The first message I had the privilege of preaching to you last night, we asked the Lord to cleanse us. This morning we asked the Lord to correct us. And this evening I want you to join me in asking the Lord to complete us. He wants to. Being confident of this very thing, that he which had begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Um, what percentage do you know offhand, Dr. Rasmussen, of the freshmen who come in wind up graduating? 50%. All the freshmen, raise your hand. So half of you will not be here four years from now. Half you will not march across this platform and receive a diploma. Some may transfer to another school. Some uh, may have a legitimate situation, a health issue that keeps them from coming back. But most of them, it'll be because they didn't want to stay on the wheel. They didn't want to let the potter complete them. Father, guide me and help me and empower me, please. And use this time to draw us to yourself and to help us understand a little more of your purpose and your working in our lives. I do pray you'd bind the devil and his demons, keep them from their purpose of trying to take your word away from our hearts. And help us again to decide in advance that we'll do whatever you tell us, that we'll be good ground, that we'll be open and eager to receive what you have for us. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. For all that you do, amen. You may be seated. Some of you are very obedient. You're still standing there. That's impressive. The nation of Israel is about to go into 70 years of captivity. They've been warned repeatedly about their problem. They didn't observe the Sabbath for 490 years, and so they owed God 70 years of Sabbaths, but they didn't have to do it. All through the book of Jeremiah, they are given opportunities to repent and to turn to God. And if they do so, they don't have to go into captivity. God says, look, here's how it works. At what instant? 
that nation that I've pronounced judgment against will turn to me at that instant. I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. That's the general interpretation of this passage, but I think there's a very important application that God is the potter and we are the clay. So I want to talk to you about the material. It's clay. How many of you have a clay ring? I mean, ladies, be pleased if when you got engaged, your fiance gave you a clay engagement ring. Uh, how many of you have a clay necklace? It's not gold that he is talking about, the material. It's not silver. It's not a precious stone. It's not even iron or stone. It's just clay. Man was made from the dust of the ground. Woman was made from better stuff. She was made from man. <laughs> Do you know why God made Adam before he made Eve? He did not want any advice on how to make Adam. <laughs> All right, ladies, I'll be fair. Do you know what God said after he made Adam before he made Eve? He looked at Adam and said, I can do better than that. <laughs> Clay. Just clay. Now, it is true that God made you and you're his creation and he doesn't make junk and he wants to use you. But, but understand what is special about you. I mentioned it this morning. is not anything intrinsic in you. It's because of God. What happened to this clay? Well, clay is a very common substance where I live. You got a little bit of topsoil, and then after that, you'll dig down and there's probably several feet of clay. And if you dig beyond the clay, you get the sand. I had a pond put in when we built our house 25 years ago. It was as cheap to dig the pond as it was to buy fill. We're in kind of a low area, so we had to put some fill in. I said, yeah, I'd like a pond. That'd be great. And they dug down, and then they, they took the clay that they dug out of the ground, and they used it to line the pond so it would hold water a little bit. And, and you, don't, you don't have to pay much for clay. But what happened to this clay is that the potter went and picked it out of the rest of the clay. Not all the clay was put on the potter's wheel. Not all the clay was going to be used to make a vessel for his service. If you are here preparing for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, God has chosen you out of the rest of the clay to do something special for him. It isn't because you're special. It's because he can do great things with ordinary materials. And the clay had to be picked, and then it had to be purified. They don't take clay right from the ground or the river bank and then put it on the wheel and start to make a vessel because there's other junk in there. There's little bits of dirt and pieces of stone and sticks and stuff. And, and what the potter does, he, he takes that clay and he gets all that junk out. Kind of like he wants to do with us. Kind of like what will happen at West Coast Baptist College. You'll hear a sermon on this, and you'll say, ooh, and Lord say, you need to get that out. Here's another sermon, you need to take care of that, and you'll be given a challenge in the dorm devotions, and the Lord will speak to you about something else. But, but I promise you this, you can never make a good vessel out of impure clay. 
too many defects, too many uh, pieces that don't belong there, and it's not going to hold water well, and it's not going to be strong, and it's not going to be smooth, and it's not going to look good. Now, the stuff in the clay wasn't evil. Stones aren't evil. Sticks aren't evil. Not everything God takes out of your life is wrong. There's just some things he doesn't want there. There's just some things that you're not going to have if you're going to be what he wants you to be. And then the clay has to be processed. You ever work with clay when you're little? You take that clay, you squeeze it between your hands. And then what do you do? When I was in art class, I, I was barely able to pass art class. I have no artistic ability. I, I did get slapped in the face in art class. In the public school, in the fourth grade, there's a little heavyset girl named Helen Soika. And uh, she was sitting next to me. We were painting with water paints, and she took her brush and painted on my face. I suspect she thought anything would be an improvement. And the teacher came by, and she said, don't you paint on your face, and whap. She slapped me across the face. You have it so easy these days. Then <laughs> I said, I didn't do that. Helen Soika did that. She said, did you do that? Helen Soika said this. And she went whap, whap and slapped her twice. <laughs> but that was my best art experience. <laughs> I told my mother about it. She said, you tell her she cannot slap your face. She can spank you anytime she wants, but she can't slap your face. No, I didn't deliver that message. <laughs> So we work with clay, you know what we do? We take, we'd roll it out into like a little long, skinny, snaky thing. And then we'd take the snaky thing and roll it together and make it flat, and then we'd mash it down, and, and then hopefully it'd be time to go to another class. <laughs> and God's going to take the stuff out. Then God's going to do something with you once he takes the stuff out. He's going to put you in different shapes. He's going to change you from what you originally were, the material. But notice the marring. The Bible says he went down to the potter's house and he wrought a vessel on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred. There's the problem. Every vessel has been marred. Every child of God is imperfect. Everybody's messed up somewhere or another. And one of the things the devil would like to do, because he knows that you did this summer, and he's going to say to you, look, you may be here in school, and your parents will be disappointed if you come back, but you know God's never going to use you after what you did. Your life is ruined. You're just going through the motions. God doesn't want you anymore. But I want you to notice the place of the marring. The vessel that he made of clay was marred. Read the next three words, if you would, with me. In the hand of the potter. There's an old song that says, though there were times I've been out of his will, I've never been out of his care. Jesus said, uh, uh, I have held you in my hand and nobody shall pluck you out of my hand. And then he said, my father, which gave me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck you out of my father's hand. You're in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're saved, you belong to him forever. And you may mess up, but you're still in the potter's hand. But then notice, who do you want to guess what the next point is? We have the material and the marring. What do you think is going to be next? I used to say the mending. 
because it fits. It's a nice alliterated word and it's in the outline. The trouble is it's not in the Bible. Just a real quick homiletical suggestion. Make sure your sermons are in the Bible. Some really cool stuff you can say, but it's not in the Bible. People have said the most intriguing things are not in the Bible. Somebody not long ago, I, I, I got hold of the message and, and he just read something. He's a great guy and he didn't mean anything by it, but, but he, was, uh, he was preaching on Proverbs. And, and one of his main points was Proverbs are not promises. Okay. I was at a meeting. I was on the board of a missionary organization. I guess I still am. I have not been to a meeting of theirs for 30 years. And uh, there was a guy who was the head of a theological seminary, and he was talking about Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child the way he should go, and his old will not depart from it. And he said, he was waxing eloquent, and he said, well, it depends whether you say that that's a promise or it's a statement of fact, and I'm of the convinced opinion that it's a statement of fact. And I said, uh, Dr. So-and-so, would you please distinguish for me the difference between a promise and a statement of fact? Does God keep his word when he makes a promise and not keep his word when he makes a statement of fact? He started talking to somebody else about something else. Now, so he just, you know, the man just read that Proverbs are not promises. Really? So he said that, you know, they're general statements and they may be usually true, but, but you can't. Now, don't you listen to that kind of nonsense. That's not from the Bible. Every word of God is pure. You take that position, you say, oh, you shouldn't look at the wine when it's red in the cup generally, but sometimes it might be okay. You ought to say, however, the strange woman is a general principle, but sometimes you might not get it. No, that's not what it says. Be careful what you say comes from the Bible. That's just a freebie. Marring is in the Bible. Material's in the Bible. But mending is not. I chose a different word. It's a big word, but you know what it means. After the marring, there's a metamorphosis. You could use the word making. You know what metamorphosis is? A caterpillar goes into its cocoon and it has to struggle to get out. It's a lot of work. And uh, if you were uh, sympathetic to caterpillars, you might be tempted to cut the cocoon open so that it didn't have to do all the work, although you'd do great damage to the caterpillar because in the process of struggling to come out of the cocoon and the experience that it's had in the cocoon, it comes out a butterfly. Now, it's the same creature, but it's changed. And you know what God says? He, he says, uh, I want to take that vessel. I'm not going to patch it up. I'm not going to glue the bad pieces back on. I'm not just going to fill in the cracks. He said, I'm going to make it again another vessel. As it seemed good to the potter to make, that takes time. The vessel goes round and round and round and round and round and round. When I was your age, time was so slow. I remember when I was in college, I'd gone to the same place for my last year of high school. So they're going to be there five years. I remember thinking one day, it's a rainy day. I'm hurrying to chapel. I'm not liking my classes. And, and uh, I just want to get out of there. And I thought, good night. I've been here two years already. I have three years to go. I'll never leave this place. And some people get tired of spending time and, and all the time that it takes for God to develop you. And not only is this metamorphosis time-consuming, it's tough. 
The potter puts pressure on the clay. He's going to push it in here and let it come out there and smooth it out there in his hand on the clay as it turns round and round. The wheel is pressure. It's tough. It's a hard thing to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It, it takes time. It's difficult. But, but when it happens, it is transformative. God doesn't want to improve you. He don't want to rehabilitate you. He don't want to fit on the cracks and glue back on the pieces. God wants to make you again another vessel. I was a little boy. My dad was preaching at camp. I'd done something wrong. He was giving me a spanking. Some wise guy with just enough psychological uh, knowledge to make him dangerous said, don't do that. You'll warp his personality. Dad said, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. I don't like the way it's shaped, and I'm trying to change the shape of it. God wants to make you another vessel. If you'd known me when I was in college, when I was in college, nobody thought I'd amount to anything. They had who's who in American colleges and universities. I did not make it. I didn't make who's who. I didn't make what's what I was nominated for. What's that? <laughs> I had a speech teacher and she didn't like me. She had good reason not to like me. One day I missed class, and she saw me after class, so she knew I just skipped. I did have an excuse for it, but she didn't know that. The next class I came to, she said, now, Mr. Willette, last class you were not here. And we learned how to give an impromptu speech. Uh, since you weren't here, you'll be the first one to give your speech in the next class period. I shouldn't have said it. I said, oh, that's all right, Ms. Parks. I already know how to give an impromptu speech. She said, fine, you may go first. I picked my topic, and I do not know why the Lord let this happen. It was on why I believe in the American free enterprise system. I'd just been to a lecture by the dean of the School of Business, Stuart Crane, and he'd given a lecture on the free enterprise system. And I had facts and statistics and reasons, and I gave a really good speech. And she gave me a B plus, and she said, try to hide the ego. <laughs> no hope that it would be dealt with, just maybe covered up a little bit. I graduated, we served as youth pastor. I served as youth pastor for two years, went to Bridgeport in 1975. In 1978, we started the Bridgeport Baptist Academy. So the spring of 78, uh, I went down to look for teachers and I saw Miss Parks and she did not say, hello, how are you? She said, what are you doing here? <laughs> said, I'm looking for Christian school teachers. And with total shock, she said, are you a Christian school teacher? I said, no, ma'am. She said, are you the principal of a Christian school? I said, no, ma'am. She said, are you the assistant pastor of a church that has a Christian school? I said, no, ma'am. She said, then what are you doing looking for Christian school teachers? I'm going to get them to join the mafia. <laughs> I started to say, I'm a pastor of a church that's starting a Christian school. I didn't get it out. I said, I'm a pastor. She said, you're a pastor? If I'd have said, I'm a drug dealer, she'd have said, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> But they had good reason. I had a lot of issues. I was a punk sometimes. I was critical. I thought I knew better than everybody else. I pretty harsh on people if I didn't think they're doing what they ought to. Now you can ask the people in our church and on our staff, one of the accusations that's been leveled against me frequently over the years as I pastored for 44 years at First Baptist Church of Bridgeport 
was that I was too merciful. <laughs> That's not natural. Every time I hear that, I thank God. <laughs> that was a learned behavior. You know what happened? I stayed on the wheel long enough and God changed me. I hate to say this is not at all true. But I've had on a few occasions somebody say that I'm humble. I'm not. I, I tried to be humble one time. I, I was given an honorary doctor's degree when I was pretty young. And I, I didn't put it on the stationery. I didn't put it on a, the, the sign or anything like that. I decided not to make a big deal about it. And then shortly after that, I saw somebody else had gotten an honorary doctor's degree. And they changed their sign right away. And I thought, aha, I am more humble than they are. And I was proud of my humility. <laughs> but any of those things that are said are said by the grace of God because I've been on the wheel a while. And I'm not done. <laughs> the Lord speaks to me all the time. People say, what's he say? He usually says, Willette, you're an idiot. I can't believe how many lessons I have to relearn and be reminded of after all these years. But if you stay on the wheel, God will help you with that. So here's the point I want to get to. Here's the message. The Bible says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the word metamorpho. God says, if you let me control your mind, did you know the battle for success or failure in your Christian life is waged and fought, won or lost in your mind? Whoever controls your mind controls you. That's why you better be in the Word of God. You better let the Word of God, Word of Christ, dwell in you richly. The word dwell means to be at home. I'll tell you how you can tell if you're in the Bible enough. If the Word of God does not come up in your ordinary conversation, you're not in the Bible enough. You go to a ball game and there's, a, there's an exciting uh, ninth inning and a Grand Slam home run and your team wins it. And you'll tell everybody all about it and you'll tell them where the ball was hit and, and when it went over the fence and how far it went and all that kind of stuff because it, it, was, it impacted you. You see an accident, you'll tell people about the accident. If the Word of God doesn't come up in your conversation, it's because it's not in your heart enough. And God says, I want to transform you by the renewing of your mind. And that is by having the Word of God dwell in me richly. You know, the, the, the Bible says that we have to receive with meekness the engrafted Word. That's interesting. You take a, an apple tree that produces red Macintosh apples. You take a branch from a yellow, delicious apple tree and graft it into that red Macintosh apple tree. What kind of apples do you get on the branch? You get red Macintosh or yellow delicious? You get yellow delicious. You get whatever the branch is, not whatever the trunk is. Otherwise, why would they graft a branch in there? Now, my trunk is bad. The heart is deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwelleth no good thing. But I can engraft the Word of God into my life, and, and then I can produce, by the grace of God, good fruit. Years ago, I was memorizing the book of James, first complete book of the Bible that I ever memorized. And, and I'd come to that verse, the, the, the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. 
There was a lady in our church, uh, and she and her two sisters and their husbands and their kids had all gotten saved and baptized and were doing great, and they're very kind to us. But she heard I was going to perform a particular wedding, which I wasn't going to perform, and she thought I shouldn't perform it. Wouldn't have been wrong if I had. I just wasn't doing it. And she said, if he's doing that wedding, we will not let him perform our son's wedding. When I heard that, I got irritated. And I thought three things. So I thought, number one, it's, you're wrong. I'm not doing the wedding. Number two, it's none of your business whether I do or not. And number three, I don't give a rip if I perform your son's wedding or not. So I picked up the phone to call her that. Her number was 777-1495. This was, my goodness, 38 years ago, maybe. I started punching out the numbers. And that verse, the wrath of man, working not the righteousness of God, just kind of zoomed to the front of my mind. So I hung up the phone. And I'm a really good Christian because about three or four minutes later, the verse was gone, but my irritation was not. I picked up the phone a second time. But the verse came again, and a few minutes later, I picked up the phone. I tried three times to call that lady. Every time the Bible came, and it said, the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. She stayed in our church decades after that. She never knows the story unless she's heard me tell it. She stayed until her husband, and she moved to a southern state because of his illness to be around family who could care for them. I wasn't smart. I wasn't clever. I wasn't right. But the Word of God changed me. You can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you get the Word of God in there. So here's, here's the message. A few thoughts. Number one, God wants to do extraordinary things with ordinary people. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many of the experts. No, he's chosen the foolish of this, uh, the things of this world to confound the things that are wise and the things that are not, to bring the not, the things that are. And you don't have to worry if you're not as smart as somebody else or as talented as somebody else. The classes don't come as easily to you as they do to somebody else. Or you're not as good a public speaker as somebody else. None of that matters. What matters is you'll put the clay you have in the hand of the potter. He can make you a vessel you'd never imagine. God wants to do extraordinary things with ordinary people. Number two, the question is not, did you mess up? The question is, did you fess up after you messed up? Just because you messed up doesn't mean you're washed up. The vessel was marred in the hand of the potter, and he made it again, another vessel. And that brings me to the third thing. God does not want to repair you. He wants to remake you. My little children of whom I travail in birth until Christ be formed in you. Second Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. But we all with open face beholding as a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote the famous book, The Scarlet Letter, he, he wrote a short story called The Great Stone Face. And in the story, there was a little village and, and there was a, a, an image that it seemed to be been naturally carved out of stone on a cliff above the village. And the legend in the village was that somebody was going to come who would resemble that image and bring great prosperity and great leadership and great help to the village. And as the story went on, a couple people came, a general and somebody else, and they thought maybe it'd be the one. And there's a young man in the village named Ernest. Ernest wanted that 
person to come that would help the village. And he, he would spend hours gazing at that image of that stone face and thinking about what it would be like when that deliverer and that helper and that leader came. And he did it night after night and month after month and year after year. And three different people came in the story. And, and finally, one day, Ernest is sitting there and he's looking at the image and the people look at him and they say, look at that. Ernest is the great stone face. The point of the story is he had looked at something so long he became like it. That's just a story, but this is the Bible. We all with open face. Beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory unto glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. God does not want to repair you. He wants to remake you. He wants to make you again another vessel as it seems good to him to make. I read about a man had gone to a jail to do music some years ago, and he sang a song called The Bird with a Broken Pinion. The stanzas went like this, I walked in the woodland meadows where sweet the thrushes sing, and I found on a bed of mosses a bird with a broken wing. I healed its wing, and each morning it sang its old sweet strain, but the bird with the broken pinion never soared as high again. I found a young life, broken by sin's seductive art, and touched with a Christ-like pity, I took him to my heart. He lived with a nobler purpose and struggled not in vain, but the life that sin had stricken never soared as high again. But the bird with a broken pinion kept another from the snare, and the life that uh, sin had stricken raised another from despair. Each loss has its compensation. There's healing for every pain, but the bird with a broken pinion never soared as high again. Hezekiah Butterworth wrote that poem, that song. Peter Billhorn sang it. And when he got done, one of the prisoners said, if that song is true, there's no hope for me or for anybody else in this prison. And Peter Billhorn went home and he wrote another verse. But the soul that comes to Jesus is saved from every sin. And the heart that fully trusts him shall a crown of glory win. Then come to the dear Redeemer. He'll cleanse you from every stain. By his wonderful grace and mercy, you shall soar higher again. God does not want to repair you. He wants to remake you. But here's the last thing. You have to stay on the wheel. Dr. Getz remembers well preacher named Monroe Parker. He was a great man, wise man, smart man, knew all kinds of things. Mind was impressive, very impressive. Monroe Parker was preaching at our church, and he made a really interesting statement. He said, there's a highway marked fundamentalism. He said, along the way, there's some exits. One was the charismatic movement, he would have said today, the contemporary church, and he gave some other exits, new evangelicalism. And he, he said, some people stay on the highway and some people get off on an exit. And I thought about that. I thought about all the exits I almost took. After my sophomore year, I got a job in Saginaw, Michigan, same town where I serve now, different church. The church didn't pay me anything, but I got to work there, and I got a job at a moving company. And I moved a man from Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, to Saginaw, and he said to me, look it, I'm putting in a computer system for General Motors, very early days of that. He said, you come work for me. You'll be a data processor for three years, and then you'll be a computer programmer. And he told me how much money I could make, and I thought, wow. 
I'm barely making it through school. My parents paid one half of the first three months of my college education. From then on, I paid everything. My car broke down, I had to pay for it. If I went to the dentist, I paid for it. And I worked two and three jobs. I'd work night watch, 10 to 2 one night and off the next night and 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. the next night. And I'd be working at a mattress factory from 4 in the afternoon to 8 in the evening, uh, three days a week and noontime to 8 or 8.30, two days a week. And, And I had other jobs I did beside that on Saturdays. And I was so tired of always being tired. And I was so tired of never having enough money. I'd sell my clothes sometimes to pay my bill and stay in school. And I said, man, that sounds really good to me. I'm do that. Could have got off. But God helped me stay on the wheel. I got into my junior year, beginning of my junior year. I was out of money again. Vietnam War was going on. I, th- I had it all figured out. I'm going to join the Army, volunteer for Vietnam. You volunteer for Vietnam. You'd spend six months here. If you volunteered for an extra month, they let you out six months early, and it was only a two-year hitch. I could get out in 18 months. I'd gotten out of high school early. If I took a little summer school, I could still graduate with my regular class in 1974. I went down. I got the papers. I filled them out. God graciously gave me a job at Roadway Express about two and a half times the minimum wage. It was the night. They'd call you up and you'd go to work at midnight and work all night and go to school the next day. Loading trucks. I really didn't work that job very long. But I worked it just long enough to make me think I didn't have to join the Army. If I joined the Army, I wouldn't have met my wife. The year I met her is when I would have been in the Army. I wouldn't have been available for the church where I was a youth pastor. I wouldn't have been available when they needed a pastor at First Baptist Church of Bridgeford. I don't know what I would have done or where it would have been, but I'd have missed God's best for my life. A lot of eggs, it's, you got to stay on the wheel. I hadn't been at our church long. and. Started having some terrible things happen. A deacon's wife was using prescription drugs and somebody else was doubting the existence of God. And I wasn't mad or upset. I just thought this church has gone beyond me. I'm too young. I don't know what I'm doing. I got to go start over somewhere else smaller. And I called a mentor of mine, Dr. Paul Vanneman. I wish you could have known him. And I told him all the things that were going on. He listened. And when I got done, he said, sounds like a normal church to me. And by the grace of God, I stayed on the wheel. We paid our building off, I think it was in the end of 2004, the end of 2005. And I thought we were going to have some money. And then I found out just shortly after that, I had not been paying careful enough attention to the person caring for our finances. And they hadn't paid our withholding taxes to the IRS. We owed the IRS $214,000. We were $58,000 behind in our missionary support. We're $40,000 overdrawn at the bank, and we owed thousands of dollars to local vendors. And God helped us, and we got through that, and we borrowed some money after we just got out of debt and paid the IRS, and then we paid that off. And just starting to come out of that, we have 52 acres. It's purchased in two separate parcels, 20 acres and 32 acres, all one piece, but purchased at different times. We don't have to pay property taxes, but we pay assessments, just a few thousand bucks a year for street lights and things like that. And I'd seen the bills come through, and I'd gone to the person and said, we pay that? And they said, yeah, we paid it. I should have checked further. The man who had taken over 
our finances when that other situation occurred, called me up. I was about to get on an airplane. And he said, preacher, we just lost that 32 acres. We hadn't paid the assessments. And for a few thousand dollars, we lost 32 acres of property to back taxes. And I got on the airplane. I was just flying from Flint to Detroit. And I said, Lord, that's it. I tried to check into that. I asked about it. I don't know what else I could have done. I got to go back and tell the people we lost 32 acres. We got to go buy it again at a tax auction if we want to have the property. I'm done. Somebody else can mess with that. I decided I didn't like being on the wheel. Not a long flight from Saginaw to Detroit, but long enough for the Spirit of God to get hold of my heart and straighten me out. That's one of those things he says, well, that, you're an idiot. And landed in Detroit. And the business guy that had taken over, Layman, who does a wonderful job, still doing it today, Brother Steve Evans, and he called me up and he, he said, Preacher, I called that lady down at the uh, courthouse. I said, ma'am, this isn't right. And she said, you know, that other person called, I could tell they didn't know what was going on. She said, listen to me, I have never done this before in my life. You've passed the deadline. I have not sent it in to the state yet. You come down and pay that today. And you can keep your property. Glad I stayed on the wheel. I could tell you a lot of stories like that. After my message this morning, one of our assistant pastors at the church where I'm a member now, Brother Scott Cowling, who's brought his son Jordan here for school, he said, Preacher, you can tell him my story. Scott Cowling's words, I was raised by a liar. If he got in trouble, his instinctive reaction was to spin and make it look like he was not at fault. I don't know anybody else like that. Y'all would never do that, I'm sure. And he was a hard worker and really faithful, but he'd, he'd do a job and leave it 5% undone. I said, Bro Scott, you... You do this great work, but you leave the mess and everybody just sees the mess. One day he came to my office and was asking me something and I told him what I thought and then he argued with the advice I gave him. Now some of this is what he remembers, some of it's what I remember. We chatted about it this morning. He says, I said to him, you did ask for my advice, right? And he said, yes. I remember saying, Brother Colling, I can't help you. You ask my advice, and then you want to argue with what I tell you. I can't help you. He remembers me saying, you've done a lot of good. God's done a great work in your life, but you will never grow beyond this point until you're willing to accept reproof. He went in his office and got alone with God and talked to God for 45 minutes, and he walked back into my office. He said, preacher, what do I have to do so you can help me? And Scott Cowling became the most teachable staff member I had in 44 years of pastoring. He would so often come in my study and say, what do I need to work on? What do you see? What do I need to improve? But that wasn't the biggest part of it. The biggest part was the things God would teach him himself as he's reading the Bible and praying and staying on the wheel and feeling the pressure and letting God change the shape and letting God uh, remake the things that were imperfect and were flawed. We have an RU ministry where the Cowling started it. 
We're the seventh church to start RU after they began sending it to the churches from Rockford. I, I believe he told me we're now the second largest in attendance of any church that has a Friday night RU ministry of a men's housing program that he oversees. And, and the last I was told, we have more in our housing program than the roll-off homes have and more in our housing program than they have at Rockford, the place that started it. Uh, every Friday night, I have about 140 people there. There are people in our choir and people teaching Sunday school and people helping in our bus ministry and people sitting all over our church that were transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and reached to the RU ministry led by Brother Scott Cowling. Why? Because he stayed on the wheel. Lord, complete me. How dumb would it be to think you're a freshman, sophomore, junior, senior in college and you've learned everything you need to learn? How sad would it be if when you graduate, you're now at the zenith of your Christian life and there's no more growth? I still find things in the Bible all the time. God deals with things all the time. And he'd like to do that with you. He'd like to keep on working on you if you'll stay on the wheel. It's hard sometimes. It's painful. And you'll mess up, but you'll never be out of the potter's hand. And if you let him, he'll make another vessel as it seems good to the potter to make. And people that are here with character flaws that would render them exceedingly unuseful in the cause of Christ can wind up doing great things for God if they'll just let him keep working on the clay. 